Take your Bibles and join me, please, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we continue in a series. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. Have you ever been out to Detroit and visited the Ford Museum? Have any of you had that chance? Yes, yes. If you'd get an opportunity, I don't know why you'd go to Michigan otherwise, but uh, if you get the opportunity, <laughs> you get the opportunity, go and visit. The Ford Museum is fabulous. They have all the retired Air Force Ones. No, that's not the right. They have the cars. They have the cars the, that, that are there in the museum. They walk through the Industrial Revolution. It is fascinating. It is fabulous. Then right next to it, they had what's called Greenfield Village. And what they've done is done like uh, circa uh, 1890s, 1920s, they've imported all kinds of original buildings from around the world, uh, and especially the United States, different things that they've created this whole village that is just absolutely fascinating. It's spend hours and hours and hours in there and get a feel of what it was like right around that turn of the century. And it's a fabulous place. It's a wonderful place. And again, you got by the name that that Edison was very involved in, I'm sorry, that Ford was very involved, he and Edison both, um, that they got involved in putting this all together in a fabulous project. And yet at the same time, there's a little in that whole story, in that fascinating account, there's a, a black side, a dark story, there's a blemish in it all. There's something that most people aren't familiar with that's behind the scenes. In 1900s, you remember in the 30s, there was this dictator who rose to power in Europe. Yes, no? Okay, do you know who I'm talking, referring to? Yeah, that killed millions of people. Jewish Holocaust and all. When he was coming into political power, he needed finances. Well, the man who gave him much of his finances to get started was Henry Ford. Henry Ford, in fact, when Hitler finally came to power, within the first few months and years of Hitler's power, he developed a whole an award called the German Eagle to be the highest award given to any individual outside of Germany for their contributions to the Third Reich. Mussolini got it, and Henry Ford got it. Because Henry Ford financed Germ uh, Hitler in his beginning and put a plant there in Germany that helped build the munitions, bought a newspaper in Detroit that was extremely anti-Semitic and talked about the purge of the world, the difficulty in the world was all Jews. And so you have this little blemish in that storied life of this American icon that there was something there that is dark and something that is horrible. We come to a story this morning in the life of David that is a fascinating story. That's a story that all of you know about, and you look at it as something very heroic, and it is. It's the story of David and Goliath. It's in that 1 Samuel 17 chapter, and you know that this story, it's probably one of the most popular Bible stories that, that people hear, even as children. We, those of you who had Sunday school, you learned about David and Goliath. Those of us who never grew up in Sunday school, we still heard about him. We had some concept because this whole idea of Goliath and David, it became a, a euphemism for a mismatch, for the underdog facing a giant. And it certainly was a mismatch. We know that because David, he's 16 years of age, he had just been secretly anointed. We talked about this two weeks ago, how the prophet went and secretly anointed David to be the future king even though Saul was still on the throne, David's going to be the future king of Israel. At this point, David has no military experience. 
He has never been out there fighting a battle as a soldier. He's never had the, I mean, you've gone through boot camp. And when, a, when David arrives at the camp, it's been a while that Goliath has been yelling and challenging and spewing his, his anger and his disdain towards the Jews and their God. And when it first started, David was back home. He's tending sheep. But dad tells him, he says, your three big brothers, they're there. They're at the camp with the Israeli army. You need to take a care package to them and check up on how my three oldest boys are doing. So David arrives, and when David arrives, this is when he finds out that there's a Goliath, that Goliath is there, and he's challenging the individuals. And when David first hears Goliath, I I don't know what his initial reaction is, but I can tell you what everybody else's was, they were filled with fear. Why? Because Goliath was this veteran soldier, the leader of the Philistine army that had invaded Judah at that point and had camped at a battle site that's called Ephes Damim, the Valley of the Blood. There was slopes on this side, slopes on this side, the Israeli army, the the Philistine army, and every day here comes Goliath come walking out there and challenging any of the Jews to a hand-to-hand battle. Now when he would come out and do this challenge while they're standing there and everybody's hearing, you have to remember that this is a big dude. When, When you get just a sense, now some of you over here won't be able to see this, but I had this purposely put up here. This is the minimum of Goliath's height. He's estimated to maybe be a foot taller. I, I wouldn't want to go against him. Okay, number one, just of who I am. Number two, just because of my size. Can you imagine Andre the Giant plus in a wrestling match with somebody like me? It'd be such a mismatch. And then you start thinking, wait a minute, you know, this guy is not only big, but this guy has weapons that are huge. Now, some of you are thinking, some of you are thinking, well, the, the, no wonder it's mythological. There aren't such things as tall people. There are, people never get this big. They do. There are occasions where people are affected by gigantism, and they do get tall. Goliath was one of them. We have had characters that are known around the world who are tall people. And Goliath is this tall, giant individual who comes along and he has the weaponry that his armor is huge and then on top of it he's got a spear that is 15 pounds. Now that would take you out. And so here's David who's never fought anybody in a battle going against this veteran and as I said, it is a pure mismatch. It is an awful situation. And the situation is this, that Goliath comes down and he says to the Israeli army, instead of us fighting this war, all of our armies, I will fight your champion. You send out one person from your side, we'll do hand-to-hand combat. And whoever wins, they win the battle. And the entire peoples, they will become slaves to the one that won and his people. And so this challenge goes on. Goliath comes out. Now, again, you're standing on the mountain side. You're in the balcony, and you see this guy walk up to the platform, and he's huge among us. He's there, and your response is probably just like the Israeli army. It is dismay and greatly afraid. It would be like me standing there and looking and saying, your turn. You go out there. You know, you do it. And it happens, if you look at the passage, evening and morning for 40 days. 
Boy, this is called psychological warfare. This is beating up the Jews big time. This is devastating. It's a mismatch. It's an absolute mismatch. But we all know the ending of the story. So it doesn't scare us. It doesn't intimidate us. We know that David goes out there and wins and we all give a hurrah for David. And yet there is something in this story that is dark. There's something that's a blemish in the story. The blemish isn't Goliath. The blemish is the person who should have gone out there to fight. The blemish is the other king. You see, this story isn't really about David and Goliath. This story is about David and Saul. If you go back to the last couple chapters, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, goes back and forth between them. And here comes to a climax, Saul and David once again. And here they were. Both of them are Jewish people. They're both people of God. They both have been anointed by God to be the king at different times. They're both possessing the Holy Spirit. That's very clear in passages we looked at two weeks ago. Both of them are individuals that have great futures, and yet God has looked at Saul and said, I'm going to replace you. You have blown it, therefore... I'm replacing you. What's wrong with Saul? Saul, as we talked about two weeks ago, Saul is a Bethlehemite. He's Jewish. He, by the way, does anybody remember what the Bethlehemites were known for as far as their weapon of choice? That's the irony of this story. Do you remember what it was? Slingshots. Slingshots. So if anybody could have taken Goliath down with a slingshot, okay, it should have been Saul. He's been king now, and you may want to mark your Bibles just so you get the story right. He's been king about 20, 25 years. He hasn't been just newly sworn in. He's been a soldier. He's led armies. He's fought these, these battles before. He is, by the way, the biggest Jew physically. Do you remember when he became king? 20 years earlier, Samuel said there is none like him among all the people because he is higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upwards. Not as big as Goliath, but bigger than any of the Jews. The biggest one they've got. The seasoned veteran, the leader in all the previous campaigns, he was the guy who should have gone out into this field. He was the guy that should have taken on Goliath. He knew the weapons that even David had, and he had more weapons than that. And yet, he doesn't do it. What is there in this story? you got a giant by the name of David, and you got a dwarf by the name of Saul. This is David and the dwarf. David and the spiritual pygmy. This is the story. It's about David compared to Saul. And what is there about David that caught God's attention, if I can say it that way? What is it about David that God said, I'm picking you to replace the king? The king who doesn't even go out and fight Goliath. What is it about David? Let me point out three things. Number one, David's walk with God. David is one who even, again, they're both, they're both I'm going to use a term, you know, if we could use it in a big generic sense. They're both believers. They're both children of God. They've both been anointed. And yet at the same time, David has a different walk with God than Saul did. We know about David's walk. We know that God has already said he's a man after God's own heart. We know that when God said, I'm done with Saul, I'm going to find somebody who has a heart after me and God looks on the, outward, on the inward appearance, man looks on the heart. 
And Saul, by contrast, he doesn't have such a good walk. If you follow the history of what's happened just in the years previous to this battle, here's what you got with Saul that's going on. You got Saul who he began to think he's an exception to the rule. Do you remember what happened in chapter 13? They're going out to battle and he's waiting for the prophet to come and give his blessings. But the prophet is late. So he considered, it's okay for me. I'm not a Levite, but I can go and make sacrifice because it'll help us in the battle. He thought he was an exception to the rule. He's like the typical believer who believes it's okay for him to lie. It's okay for him to look on the internet at things that are forbidden. It's okay for for them to say, let's not work on our marriage. It's okay for that believer to say, I don't need to be baptized. It's okay because I'm an exception to the rule. I don't have to share the gospel. That's the type of man Saul has become, where he thinks he's an exception. And then when there was a second, another battle that showed up, All of a sudden, they get their message through the prophet. They get their message through the Ark of the Covenant, which didn't have a permanent home yet. And the priest would approach the Ark, and they would turn, and they would give the message from God. Well, all of a sudden, they're in another battle at Michmash. And in this battle, he calls for the Ark of the Covenant. Bring the Ark. I want to hear what God wants wants us to do. And when the Ark is present, all of a sudden he's so agitated by the circumstances of battle, he says, get it away from me. He has no time for the Word of God anymore. He's similar to the modern believer who is all about serving God except for it doesn't take time to read the Word of God. The modern believer who talks and sings and has that that verbiage that sounds like they're really excited about spiritual things, but never cracks their Bible from Sunday to Sunday. They don't have time. We're too busy. Saul is the type of a believer that all of a sudden he chose to disobey God's commands. In the next battle, in the next chapter, it talks about how he was to wipe out all the enemy. But he is rebuked by the prophet that when the prophet shows up and says, what means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? And goes on to say, your sin of disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. You have disobeyed God and not following God's commands. That's where this man is at. And as a result, we begin in chapter, the beginning of this chapter, and here's what we find. It, go back to chapter 16, actually. Chapter 16, go to verse 14. This is how far he has fallen. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord troubles you. Let us now seek somebody who can play the harp. To calm you down. And then we go a little bit further. It says, verse 23, It came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took a harp and he played music and Saul was refreshed. He came to a point where there's an evil spirit of the Lord that's upon him. Exactly what is that? Well, let me point out a couple things. Number one, at the beginning of what we just read, it wasn't uncommon during this time period for the spirit to come and go. The Spirit of God wasn't like He is today. When the Spirit of God comes upon you who are born-again believers, He comes and dwells permanently, forever. John chapter 14, John chapter 16. In the Old Testament era when Saul was alive, he could come and go to use people, to bless people, to guide people who were doing a special task. God has come to a point where He's removed His Holy Spirit from Saul. 
It is an evident sign, very sure, that God is done with this man. And then it says that the evil spirit from the Lord. What is that evil spirit? There's all kinds of ideas. There's the idea that he was demon-possessed, that some demon came upon him that was allowed or sent by God to possess him. Some think that this is more of the allowance that God let a demon attack him physically, mentally, psychologically, the way that God allowed Satan to attack Job. Some suggest that what this is, is the evil spirit, is the same that comes from the book of Judges, where there was a discontentment within his spirit, within his heart, like a spirit, this evil from Saul's perspective, was that Saul was under great conviction. And he felt it was evil and he couldn't sleep because the conviction of God. I don't know which one it is. You, You who are more scholarly can figure it out. But whatever it is, what is happening to this man, he is noticeably troubled. To whatever extent it is, he isn't able to function. He is under such distress, he can't sleep. He can't get along with people. He is like an individual who is under such severe conviction that they are like the Apostle Paul before he got saved. That he became so angry that he started attacking other people and killing the Christians. And God God's strikes him down one time and he says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks of conviction. Well, that's where Saul is at. That's where he's at spiritually. And he has no intent of repenting. He's the dark blemish. And as a result, when he's at the battlefield, when he should be out front leading, we read that he, along with everybody else, he is intimidated by Goliath. He is one who is dismayed and greatly fearful. He is one that he runs back to his tent to get away. He's a believer filled, or a a Jew filled with great fears, great intimidation. He's an individual who's come to a point where he's focused only on the circumstances. He doesn't have the eyes of faith anymore. He can't see beyond the problems that are facing him. He is overwhelmed by the size of Goliath. He is overwhelmed by the financial problems, the physical problems, the political problems. He is run over by circumstances. He's an individual that all he can see is difficulties. He can't see a way out of this. He can't see any good coming out of it. In fact, if there's anything he's looking at, what do I lose? What do I lose? Well, if I go down there, I could... Here he is, a fearful man. Now, contrast him with David's walk. David at this time, a man... A man after God's own heart. How do we know that? Oh, you turn to the book of Psalms, part of the passage you read just minutes ago. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how wonderful you are. How majestic is thy name. When I consider, we talked about this last Sunday morning, when you consider what you've done with your fingertips, is there any other psalm that can express love and worship like Psalm 23? You know it. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. You know it. You read through the book of Psalms. You read how David time and again prays, let me get closer to you. Let me know you. Let me draw into your presence. 
the way some of you pray. That you get alone with God and you are so open with Him, you are just pleading with Him, please draw me closer to you. Please purify me. That's that's David as a 16-year-old. David has that type of spirit. And when he first hears Goliath, when he comes there bringing the care package and he sees Goliath, his perspective is totally different than everybody else's. And by the way, perspective is everything. Three people see the Grand Canyon. The story goes. There they are. The first one is an artist. For the first time he sees the Grand Canyon and his thought is, whoa, what a beautiful painting. Whoa, I could make money making paintings of this place. The next guy who is standing there first time seeing, he's a preacher. Whoa, the glory of God is manifested there at the Grand Canyon like nothing else. What a sermon I could preach. The third guy standing there, he's a cowboy. Whoa, you could lose some real good cows down in that big ditch. (laughs) Totally different perspectives. Some are like Saul. They see nothing but problems, the lost cattle. Some are like David who see an opportunity. They see something that can be accomplished. They see that there's a challenge ahead of them. David, when all of a sudden the story unfolds, David's perspective is amazing. When David gets there, he responds when he hears it. He says to his brothers, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He sees it as, this is a challenge. This can't go on. I remind you, it's been going on morning and evening How many days? 40 days. 40 days. And David's like, we got to stop this. We got to put an end to this. And when he runs out and meets Goliath, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. Buddy, you're in trouble. I'm, I'm here. I'm the trouble you're in. Totally different perspective. Now, immediately, David is, you know, he sees this as, this is offensive to God. This is challenging to God. This guy is after the Lord our God. And his response is, I'm going to defend the name of God. The reason being I'm going to defend the name of God is, I walk with God. I love this God. I'm going to defend this God. It's like you who are deeply in love with that special significant other. If somebody accused them, attacked them, you would, I'm going to defend them. I'm going to, I'm going to stop this, this disgrace and this dishonor. That's David. He loves God. He's a believer who walks with God. And as a result, he's going to get out there. He's going to do something. How so your walk with God? Which one of those two are you like? How is it that, you know, at home and in private? Because that's where David loved God before he shows up at the battlefield, at home and in private. How is it between you and God? How is it when all of a sudden there's opportunity to take the Word of God and to read it? Push it aside because America's got talents on. Push it aside because 
I got computer games to play. Push it aside because the grass is growing. All those things will continue. But you need the Word of God. What about, what about you having a regular time of prayer? What about you choosing to obey the commands of God or disobeying them? These are just, these are just a handful of some explicit commands of God. And you choose week by week, am I going to obey or not obey? How's your walk with God? Do you remember this? The sin of disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, how is it when all of a sudden, when you hear God's name used in vain, certainly you would never use it. Certainly none of you would ever use the name of Jesus or God in vain, ever. So when you hear that being done, does it irritate you? Does it bother you? When somebody attacks your Bible and calls it a fool's book, what do you do? What do you do when all of a sudden somebody openly refuses or rejects to obey the Word of God? Does it bother you? Or is it, that's their business? How is it in your heart when all of a sudden you get an opportunity to worship and you say, I've got better things to do? Better than to come and worship God? Better than to gather in a public assembly where we sing praises to God? How's your walk with God? No wonder God uses David in such a fantastic way. David's heart is one where he is walking with God. But there's something else about David. Something else that was really spectacular in this text, in this story that you're familiar with. His willingness to get involved. His willingness to get involved. You see it very clearly. That when David shows up, it's been going on for 40 days, 40 nights. There's a lot of people who don't like it, but they're doing nothing about it. Saul doesn't like it, but he's doing nothing about it. He's like, many who sit in churches today, they don't like the fact people are going to hell. They don't like the idea that there's a lot of corruption taking place. They don't like the fact that today's kids are being taught a whole bunch of garbage, but they do nothing about it to counter it, to change it. They don't like the fact that their co-workers don't know the Word of God, but they do nothing about it. So David here, he shows up, and David immediately says to his brothers, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And his brother's response is very interesting if you look at the story. If you look at the story is when David starts saying, you know, why isn't somebody, basically, why isn't somebody doing something? Why, you know, why is it in verse 26 that this Philistine is allowed to defy the armies of the Lord? And the people answered and they speak to him. And Eliab, his brother, when David spoke unto the men, Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom has you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart. You are come down that you might see the battle. And David's response, what have I done? Is there not a cause? And he turned before him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him the same as the brother did. So when David responds to saying, we got to stop this Goliath, he's rebuked. He's discouraged 
by his own kinsmen, by his own family members who grew up in the same household, accusing him of coming out of pride and for personal gain and personal glory. Can I make an observation? A sad observation, but a true one. When you all of a sudden as a teenager say, I want to start sharing the Word of God. I want to get the Word of God to other teens at school. I want, I want, to, I want to get a Bible study going. I, I want to go and, and talk to my friends. Or you say, I know there's hungry people out there. They need the gospel, but I'm going to help feed them food and then make that an open door to feed them the Word of God. And I'm going to minister in that way, using some means of helping people with food or clothing or shelter. And I'm going to sacrifice some of my own finances, my own time, in order to share with them, to show the love of Christ, so that we can share the gospel. Or all of a sudden you say to family members, the Bible demands that those who are pure and undefiled religion, we visit the widows. The Bible demands this. And you say, I'm going to do what the Bible demands of me. I'm going to go visit some of the elderly, the lonely. I'm going to go to a rest home. I'm going to go and visit some of those people. And I'm going I'm to try to be an encouragement. And by the way, when you try to do that, they'll be an encouragement to you. Or you say this. You say, I think it's important that Christians pray. And not only should the church have prayer meetings, but I'm going to show up. I'm going to go. And I'm going to form some myself. And I'm going to ask others to join me periodically to do prayer time. To pray for the world. To pray for our, our country. To pray for the education system. To pray for our, for our gospel outreach. Or you would have the audacity to say, the world needs Christ, and I'm going to challenge the world. I'm going to challenge Satan's hold on this world. I'm going to go and preach the Word of God. I'm going to yield my life to serve the Lord in a vocational ministry, missions, or I'm going to go on a temporary missions trip, and I'm going to get involved. I mark this down. That just like David, when David saw a cause that needed to be addressed, unfortunately you will run into some opposition from others who would discourage you. And typically, they'll come from sources that you'd never expected. Family. It might be your physical family. It could be your church family. It could be other teens in the youth group. It could be others underneath the roof of your house. It could even be your parents, kids, teens, who would say there's not enough money in missions. But when there's a cause, you should be willing to address that cause. That's why David stands out. David's an individual that responds and says, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause to oppose the evil that confronts us in the battlefield? May I ask you a question? Is there evil outside these doors? Is there giants in our land right now? Opposed to the word of God? Opposed to the spread of the gospel? Opposed to the teaching of truth 
about God being creator, that men are accountable to that God. We got giants all around us. We got giants of hunger and loneliness. We got giants of blindness to the gospel. Is there not a cause for you to be willing to do some battle on your knees via gospel literature? There will be people who will discourage you. But David, David was willing. How do I know that? He asked why nobody is challenging Goliath. He's convinced this is a cause. Look at this. He goes to Saul's tent, talks with Saul and says, I will go out and fight. He's willing. He volunteers for it, as you read in the passages that we give you. He's insistent when the king says, you can't do it. David's insistent. He says, why not? I know I'm small. I know I'm young. But there was a lion and there was a bear. They came against the sheep and God delivered them into my hand. He'll deliver that ugly giant into my hand. He's willing in the sense that when he goes to the battle, he picks up five stones. Anybody remember why? Probably five. He wasn't expecting to miss. Goliath has four brothers that we'll read about later on. It it strikes me that David figured, I'm getting them all. You read the story, and it says in verse 40, he drew near to the giant. Let's be honest. If we were on that battlefield, which direction would we go? Let's add to it. When Goliath, as David goes down to the plain, he's drawing near, Goliath is really ticked that David is out there. Do you think I'm a dead dog that some scum like you come out? And Goliath moves towards David. David doesn't do this. It reads, he hastened and ran toward the army, Goliath and his army. David engaged. He was willing. Now, why? Why was he so willing to get involved Well, we know this, the glory of God. He is all about the reputation of God. He is not about his own reputation like his brothers accused. He's not about this idea, well, I'm going to go to prayer meeting just so I look good. I'm going to go to missions just so everybody thinks I'm heroic. I'm going to get involved sharing the gospel just so people laud me. Uh Uh-uh, that's not David. That's not most people who are willing to get involved. Instead, he says, this is for us. Us, the people of God. This is going to benefit us. This is going to bring glory to God. God's people. He points out, you know, the idea that he does this. I I need to point this out. He says to to Saul, and he says to Goliath, the Lord's going to deliver you into my hands. He goes out and he says, he will give you into my hands. We talked about this in Sunday school just minutes ago, dealing with, you know, dealing with the loss of a loved one, how you and I need to be careful and not be presumptuous about certain things. David is not presumptuous. David's willingness and his confidence from, that builds in that willingness is based on the Word of God. You do realize that, right? David has the Word of God. He knows He knows that he's going to win this battle. How does he know that? He's got a promise from God. He had been anointed just shortly before this. 
He had been anointed to be the next king of Israel. David has not yet been king, so what does that mean? David cannot die until he becomes king. He's going to be Goliath. It's a subtle promise from God, but it's there. David isn't being foolish. David knows that he is invincible until God's done with him. And so he goes out to battle based on the word of God, based on the works of God. He looks back at how God had worked. You know, there's a reason why we've done this the last couple weeks and said, think about, as we begin the service, think and share blessings from God this week. Why? Because if we reflect on the way God has provided in the past, what does that tell us about the future? He will continue. The way God has answered your prayers in the past, what does that tell you about the future? He's going to... He's going to answer prayers. The way God has used you this past week, he can use you this week. Here he is. David is saying, God has delivered me from from these, these animals that were voracious, that were killers. God can continue to work in and through me. So his confidence is not presumptuous, not pious. It's based on realities. And he says, okay, I'm going to get involved. I'm the only one here that seems to want to do it, but that doesn't stop me. I'm going to get involved. What about you? What about you getting involved? Okay, there's not many people that are going to give out tracts and go witnessing. What about you? What about you teaching the next generation that we're so concerned about that they're being dominated by all kinds of corrupt teaching that is denying the word of God, that is confusing about, about gender, that is corrupting their minds. What about you teaching them? What about you doing Bible studies with the young people? What about you being willing to teach Sunday school? What about you getting involved? Instead of just boohooing of what's going on, do something. What about you when it comes to taking the gospel? Yes, let's be for missions. But what about you hitting your mission field in your office, in your neighborhood? What about you all of a sudden allowing and encouraging your kids to consider going to missions overseas? What about you when it comes to you doing a Bible study in your neighborhood? You just being willing to say, I'll invite some neighbors and we'll do a Bible study. What about you even considering getting involved on a level where you say, I will get involved with school board. I will stand against some of this stuff. I will get, I will contact and, and as a parent, I'll be conscientious about what's being done in the school. Do something. Be willing. Be willing to say, hey, we're all against addictions. Get involved with ministering to those with addictions. What about you? What about you being willing? There was a preacher, true story that came down from several decades ago about a preacher in England who was approached by a woman who was a widow, who had children, who was desperate. She approached this clergyman asking for assistance for her and her children. 
his response, he said he would pray for her. But he didn't have time. He was busy heading to a meeting. A week later, she wrote him this letter. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities group to discuss my plight and others like me. I was like those in prison, and you crept off quietly to pray for my release. I was naked, and in your mind, you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick. You knelt and thanked God for your own good health. I was homeless, and you preached to me about the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely. You left me alone to pray. You seem so holy and so close to God, but I am still so very hungry and lonely and cold. Could you really show me the love of your God? That could be written to a lot in this room. Are you willing? Are you willing? His walk, his willingness, and third of all, we have this, the weapons of choice. David's weapons of choice. We know the story. King Saul, this, this amazes me. King Saul is willing to let David go to the battle. He doesn't think David's going to win. So what does King Saul do? It says, literally, he armed David with his army. armor. He put a helmet on David. Think this through. How's David going to wear? David's 16 years old. We already said that Saul was head and shoulders above every Israeli. That would include David. How is David going to wear the armor of Saul and move on the battlefield? We all know that that's not going to work. A helmet that falls down over your eyes is not a good helmet. And so here he's willing. And those are the proper weapons, the weapons of, of that people would choose. But David's smart. He says, wait a minute, I need weapons that I work with. I need to use what God has given me. And he picks the weapons. It says in the passage, a staff and the slings and stones. And I remind you of anybody there who should have been good with the slingshot, it should have been Saul. And so David picks these weapons. He goes out there, and we all know what happens. The happy ever after story. David beats Goliath. But think this through. Think it through. David didn't try to be somebody else in his service to God. David was David. David was one that just used what he had. It wasn't that which was going to be manufactured by others. It wasn't going to be something that that was fabulous. David didn't have experience, but he knew he had the Lord. David is an individual that just used those simple weapons. What are you doing with the weapons God has given you? By the way, God's given you weapons. You who are born-again believers, God, is, God has, he has already armed you. He has armed you with prayer. Have you used it? He has armed you with the teaching of God's word. The ability to understand it. The knowledge of the word of God. Yours may be imperfect, incomplete, but it's enough. Remember the one man who was such a witness? I don't know. All that I know is this. Once I was blind, but... You can say that. You know that much. 
What about the gifts that God has given you? And some of these gifts that are mentioned, like hospitality, some of you have these gifts. Some of you have mercy. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the gift of administration. What are you doing with it? What, what are you doing with the gift of time? So common that we forget about time. What about the treasures? What you possess? What about the possession of your home and your car? How are you using them for the glory and the ministry of God? To help out others. To help out those who are very lonely. Who are overcome by the giant of discouragement. But you take and get in your car and you go and visit. You invite them over to your house for a meal. What, what about, a lot of you are really good. I'm really bad at this. I send the weirdest texts. Oh my lands, I've gotten in trouble with texts I've sent. There's a thing on that texting that I hate. It's called autocorrect. You, you're there too, okay. Oh, I've sent some vulgar stuff than ever intended. <laughs> but some of you are really good at that. Some of you are really good with media. What, what representation have you made for Christ that has been glorifying God? What have you been doing with it? What have, what have you been doing for speaking up for what's right? What about the simple tool of encouragement? A phone call. A visit. To, people are going through trials. People are facing illnesses. People are facing crises. And some here have yet to go and personally visit those individuals who are going through those battles for months. What about just giving out tracts? Here he is, he picks the weapons. Such a contrast. Such a contrast between two men. Two anointed men. Two men that had the Spirit of God. One lost it. Two men who were picked by God to serve, who believed in Jehovah. Difference in their degrees of belief. Which one are you more like? David or the dwarf? You don't have to stay there, folk. You can be used of God in some fabulous way by becoming like David. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for family. I pray for those listening on live stream, later on even. Help us. Help us as individuals to have that walk with you. Help us to be willing to do more than just go to church. Help us, please, to use the weapons, the spiritual weapons you placed in our hands, the physical weapons you've entrusted to our age and our technology. Help us to be people who see needs and don't cower because of the circumstances and fear and become discontent and absolutely disabled by our own, by our own trepidations. Help us to be people of faith, courage, involvement. Help us, God. Help us to see your hand do some wonderful things. 
I pray this in Christ's name. Before I close and dismiss you, if you're here today and you have visited, thank you so much. But our biggest concern is this, is that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, that you're confident you're on your way to heaven. If you're here this morning and you are not sure that you are yet on your way to heaven, we want to be able to take time to show you from the Word of God to answer that question, how can I know I'm going to be in heaven? The Bible was written with these words, these things have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You aren't sure that you're on your way to heaven. I'm going to have Pastor Kim, his wife, come and stand here and remain here at the front of the auditorium as you leave. If you want to come and talk with them, they'll get a man, a woman, they'll get somebody to show you from the Word of God how you can be confident that you know you're on your way to heaven. Don't leave without knowing. Find out. Find out. Be sure. Be sure. Come and ask these folk. Or if you came with somebody, ask them. But make sure you know. 